Occhio destro dominante. Right eye dominant. Rechtes auge dominant. Right eye dominant. Høyre øye dominant. Right eye dominant. Alleine lyunge almohengene to. Right eye dominant. This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of season number three of the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. Really happy to be back at the helm here sitting behind the microphone at the Right Eye Dominant World Headquarters in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Took a nice little summer break, although I was a little busy just planning and getting some recordings in the can for this upcoming season, but I'm raring to go and happy to be back. This season, I want to expand the scope of the podcast a little bit. I started this podcast primarily as a photographic-focused podcast, and I still intend to talk mostly about photography. However, I am interested in expanding the, the, the focus of the show just a little bit. And so this season, I'll be talking with graphic designers, book designers, talking about artists, visual artists, who in some way have a connection to the world of photography. And I think this will make for uh, interesting listens for you but also keep me engaged in, in producing this show. And so I think it's a win-win for everyone involved. And to that end, uh, today's episode is a good one to start this new broader focus approach with. And uh, my guest is the great graphic designer, visual artist, typographer, sometimes filmmaker, and all around creative force of nature, his name is Stefan Sagmeister, and I will give a little bit of an intro about Stefan and his work before we get into the conversation. I reached out to Stefan because I've always been an admirer of his work, and I actually crossed paths with him about seven or eight years ago when the two of us were among the attendees of the Werner Herzog Rogue Film School, which uh, is a topic of discussion that we start this conversation with, and it takes an interesting turn, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's uh, a little bit of an amusing start for the conversation. So without further ado, let's get on with today's episode. Thanks for listening. So I did want to provide some background information about Stefan Sagmeister before we got into the conversation. I do want to provide some context of why I thought he'd be a good guest for the podcast in the first place. So Stefan Sagmeister was born in Austria, uh, educated in Vienna, but uh, most of his professional career has taken place in New York City, where he established a very highly regarded graphic design agency named Sagmeister Incorporated. And uh, his work primarily started in the music industry doing album covers and album artwork for such artists such as David Byrne, 
Horn, Brian Eno, Lou Reed, and even the Rolling Stones. At the same time, he was really forging a new direction for contemporary graphic design. And one of the things I found really interesting about Stefan before I, I knew a lot of his work is that he actually appears in a lot of his designs. And I remember he did an AIGA event poster where he actually cut all the information about the event into his skin and then photographed himself for the poster. And we do talk a little bit about that uh, in our conversation. Stefan is also known for the books of design and art that he has put out. Uh, one specifically that I was uh, really moved by was called Things I Have Learned in My Life So Far. And this book is really interesting, not only because of its design and its binding, but also because of his unique handmade typographical treatments that are featured throughout the book. After the success of that book, Stefan started to explore the world of filmmaking, and this is when our paths first uh, crossed. He was working on a film called The Happy Film, where he explores three different specific methods of trying to find happiness, and he documents it throughout the film. Not only is it an entertaining look at uh, trying to take care of one's mental health, but also it has lots of Stefan's now signature typographic and visual treatments that are just a, a pleasure to watch in the film. Currently, uh, Stefan Sagmeister is working on a project which will be an exhibit and a new book of his, and it's called Now is Better. And it's all an exploration of how life on Earth has actually gotten better, even though that flies in the face of uh, popular uh, opinion. I find this work very intriguing. And Sagmeister actually introduces infographics into more fine art painting styles. And it's a very interesting bridge between fine art and graphic design. I will have links to all of these examples uh, in the show notes. I just wanted to give you a little bit of info on who our guest is today. So without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Stefan Sagmeister, welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I I, I want uh, the listeners to know that uh, although I've been a fan of your work for a long time, we also have a common connection of both of us attended the Werner Herzog Rogue Film School at the same time, which was pleasant surprise for me. Uh, but also, I know you were working on your film at the time, uh, which might be something that we do want to talk about. But just the fact that, uh, you know, we, we both learned uh, or, or studied uh, so uh, closely with Herzog, even though it was for a short, short amount of time. Uh, I know for me that that time spent has been so influential on, on just how I proceed with my own creative life. I don't know if it's uh, what your thoughts were as far as maybe that's where we could start the conversation. You know, I absolutely loved it, meaning I wouldn't want to miss a minute of it because it was so interesting. And I think I learned absolutely nothing. <laughs> and even later, I found that many things that he said were very true for him. Yeah. But completely untrue for other people. Mm. Or like I, I give you an example. Like I remember that he thought that uh, 
that drawing frames out before like storyboarding was, right. as you mentioned, it was for wimps. <laughs> and it's like, you know, basically he thought only idiots would storyboard. Right. And right. that is probably very true for the kind of movies that he makes. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to make an effect-laden movie, it's completely impossible not to storyboard. And I actually felt that our film suffered from not storyboarding. Oh, or interesting. I yeah. that, I, that I, after we were done, I visited a very good film director in Mexico, and uh, he won Cannes twice. So this is a proper, a proper film director. Right. And he showed me the movie that he was working on, which had like a telephone book worth of every frame storyboarded. And I looked through that and I thought, oh, my God, I would love to work on this. <laughs> <laughs> because we had done our thing with not a single storyboarding anything. And I was so stressed because of it, because I'm so inexperienced as a filmmaker. Mm. And the Mexican film director, of course, told me he storyboards absolutely everything. So when he is at the shoot, he can concentrate on detail. He doesn't have to think of, oh, where do I put the camera? And how, how large do I want this character in, uh, in my frame? Right. All of those decisions are at least thought about ahead of time. So they be, and uh, of course, I completely understand where Werner is coming from, but it's his kind of movie. Of it's, course. Uh, those of things course. are not universal rules. That's what I thought. Well, and it, I think that brings up an interesting point also because and, – and now I'm like, oh, I was so glowing towards my, my response to uh, the class and you're like, I didn't learn anything. However, I think that there is I, – I, I, and I generally wouldn't consider myself a filmmaker. It, it's one of the things that I've worked on, but I, no I think I, – I, Right. So I think that there's something about the liberation of – the sort of the process or the unrestraint or finding ways to navigate around traditional challenges or roadblocks maybe. Cause see, you even taught us to teach us, but alluded to learning how to pick locks and forge documents. And, you know, I mean, to, to encourage people to break the law. I mean, you know, I took that as basically being, if you're going to make a film, you better be unstoppable. Mm -hmm. You better not, like, you know, let these little roadblocks uh, discourage you. Right. I also, like, I think what I probably took away the most was that he literally could talk eight or nine hours straight. And it was, I think everybody in the class after nine hours felt, oh, I don't want to go to dinner. I want to listen to three more of this. Yeah. For sure. And that is just basically like the fact that he can be in real life just talking about movies, such an excellent, fascinating, engaging storyteller. Of course, ultimately, is the reason why he makes fascinating, engaging films. Absolutely. Yes, totally agree. And with that. I think that that ability is, is quite amazing both in his documentary book and in the narrative, uh, uh, you know, section. So, yeah, I think that that makes him unique among others. Agreed. 
I want to ask you about it because I think there is a connection to, I think how I perceive, let's say Herzog's spirit of, of not holding back. Like you, like you just said, and it seems as though in many ways, you and your work, um, certainly in your, your professional life, it seems like that is an MO for you as well. One of the things that's always attracted me to your work is that it, it pushes the limits or it goes to unexpected places. And I mean, I know you've probably talked about carving into your body thousands of times and we don't have to get into that specifically, but there is something that that act says to me that you are willing to literally put your flesh and blood into your process. So um, where does that come from for you? I think ever since I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, and the idea that design could be a path or is something interesting was in my mind. I definitely wanted to do good design, basically wanted to do good work. Now, what that meant changed over time, but I think probably what not changed was this desire to make emotional things that would touch somebody. And on the way there, yeah, somehow maybe be unstoppable. I don't think to the, to the extent that, that Mr. Herzog is, you know, meaning like I've never, you know, spent a year <laughs> in the South American jungle, you know, fighting uh, basically, uh, you know, close to the edge of my life. So I think he, my guess would be that, that, no, no, my guess, I'm sure that he went much further down that, that route. Because, you know, let's say the, the poster you alluded to where I cut the typography into my skin, that was all done in the safety of my studio. Like, you know, I tried it out before. Yeah, yeah, it's drawing blood. And so, and it turned out to be much more painful in the aggregate than I had expected from the little tryout, mm-hmm. but this is all doable. So you didn't see like an act like that as, uh, I mean, it, it certainly is daring from a, from a, even from a visual standpoint, let's say uh, as a designer and I'm looking at work and I see that particular piece that to me shows not only a, a, a very unique you know, way of thinking about solving a messaging problem, which is what you were doing, but also that you would in some ways sacrifice, you know, it's maybe a temporary sacrifice, your skin will heal, but you're sacrificing your body to this project. To me, that is, that shows a, a at least a degree of courage uh, to you know, you can think the idea, but then to execute it. So that to me, like you executed it and you did it on yourself. You didn't do it on, on a model or you didn't, you know, Photoshop in or so there's, there's courage there. There's daring there, but also, um, you know, and I, and I want to hear your thoughts about this is because I see you in a lot of your work, 
not only you physically, but also your thoughts are conveyed through your art, your type treatments, the different projects. It is very personal, certainly from a graphic designer standpoint, to put yourself in pieces like that. I think that breaks some barriers. Um, where where do you, and again, I think like maybe not to where did that come from, but I don't know if everyone, certainly a a, a, a more conservatively minded designer would put themselves in their work the way that you have throughout your career. Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I can definitely talk about that. And that actually did come from a very specific place. I grew up, of course, you know, in the western part of Austria, very close to Switzerland. So I was surrounded basically by the world of Swiss modernism, which in graphics was quite leading, but ultimately is not all that different from modernism in general. And uh, this was, this was, and is actually kind of used globally. You can also call it the international style that basically became the de facto corporate style of the world. Like this is how companies communicate, you know, in Helvetica, clean on white backgrounds with bleeding photos, meaning photos that go all the way to the edge, uh, with some, you know, well-composed layout. And the, the sort of like the overall idea of that is also that it's, that it's uh, objective, that basically that the designer is outside, mm-hmm. everything is made like it's made by a machine, even if it's made by hand. Mm-hmm. And it was very successful at that because most people, if you show them, I don't know, like, you know, a corporate logo, they probably will think it's been made by a computer, completely unaware that this, even though it might have been ultimately finalized on a computer that this was going through many, many, many dozens of meetings with dozens of people, uh, you right. know, laboring, overweight, giving their comments and so on. And I thought this was stupid. Like, I just thought basically this kind of de facto uh, knee-jerk communication way, for one thing, it's so ubiquitous that you see it everywhere. For the other thing, who wants to be talked to by a machine? What's the idea behind uh, everything should look like it's been made by a machine? It's sort of like the visual equivalent of you calling a company and getting an answering machine or into an automated loop. Nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to be talked to like that. So it was a very conscious desire to basically make sure that it's clear that this has been made by a human being, that it's emotional, that it is not objective, but subjective. This comes from a very clear standpoint. And in the cases where myself, where I was actually at the center of it, as in the poster that we talked about with the cutting, which was a lecture poster, so it was my lecture, Mm -hmm. or when it's uh, on some cases, uh, on some, on uh, in some cases where it was a book that was really all about the things that I've learned. Mm-hmm. I also played myself when it basically I was the product, so it was it made sense that I myself would be in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure ego probably played a role in there as well. But I think the major 
the, uh, the major component was that it was basically a product chart considering it was my thoughts. Uh, and so those couple of elements led to a much more personal design and it seemed to have worked because, you know, I mean, I remember the opening card for the studio was a card where I was twice naked on it in a very unsexy way with socks on and, uh, and penises showing and so forth. And even though we probably sent 200 of those postcards out, it got reproduced in dozens and dozens of magazines around the world. So everybody knew that my studio was open, even <laughs> though we only sent 200 postcards out. But it probably was reproduced. At that point, it was still print, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of times. So as a, as a communication tool, it was a very effective, very, uh, very functional communication tool. Well, and you you bring something up, and this is just a sort of my own reaction to it. Is that uh, yes, like you're utilizing your yourself in these particular pieces, um, but you, and you just said like you're you're naked, but it's not in a sexy, gratuitous way. It's it's very unsexy, or like the but the fact that like to me that 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 you know you're for lack of a better term, you're a recognized public figure to a certain uh, degree. In my space, in, right. like, in the world of graphics, yes. Yeah, and so, um, you know, to literally expose yourself, to me, that just, it's a, no pun intended, but it's a ballsy move, or it's, a, you know, given given the, the opportunity, I know I wouldn't do that. So there's a, uh, you know, there's a there's a degree, as I said earlier, of bravery or like in, in the case, it, yeah. yeah. In the case of the opening postcard, that is actually true because I remember I was very unsure about it, and I had to go over my own internal humps to actually go ahead with it. My girlfriend at the time advised strongly against it and said, "I'm going to lose the one client that I have over it." And it just, that just, and if I would have lost that client, maybe that would have been it. Mm. But the fact was that when I visited that client two months later in his office, he had the only thing that was up on the wall in his office was that postcard. And it had a post-it note on it that said, the only risk is to take no risks. It's great. And we got two additional jobs out of uh, out of that, uh, out of that card. But I think I found that many, many times in my life with extremely few exceptions, extremely few exceptions. Whenever I overcame my own fear and didn't follow my assumptions of all the things that could go wrong, it worked out. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, and many fantastic things came out of it. It's, I, I found that my assumptions of things that can go wrong are mostly overestimated. Hmm. And I, I would say out of 20, 19 times when I overcome, if, I, if I'm in a, stay, in, in a stage good enough to overcome the hump or to go through it, it will work out. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And and it it, it folds into uh again a reference to one of your 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 noteworthy pieces of work, the things that I have learned that it it's and and what I like about not only what you just said, but the examples of the work in that book is that there are truisms that are specific to you. And as I said earlier, like that's, you know, you, you, these are your thoughts. These aren't intended to be like, Oh, I'm going to pull quotes off the internet and visualize them. They're personal to you, but they're universal in a lot of ways. And, and so I think that, you know, one as a creative person myself can look at that work I can admire your skill and your craft, and that's definitely part of it, but also in a way that's inspirational or aspirational for me to see, well, here's somebody who I think is a success or is work that I admire, who's in some ways having the same dilemmas or struggles that I have, or probably most most people if they or are at, at all self-reflective. So, okay. yeah. Yeah, I found that specifically doing the making of the happy film, I found that all the little quirks and things that I had thought were very special to me and that I'm the only one who has them. Mm-hmm. When I looked, when I, you know, in the in preparation for the for the happy film, I probably read about a hundred psychology books, and I found that there were entire schools of things that I thought was a little quirk of me. That there was a complete field of research that was studying that little quirk. So millions of people had exactly the same thing as that little quirk, and that I was much, much, much less special than I had thought that I, that I was. Right. And so yes, yeah. uh, uh, basically every one of those things that I thought were very personal to me, uh, I felt other people could relate to them very well. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and on that note, I remember specifically when, when we first met at, at Herzog's class and we were talking about the film and there was a particular... Uh, uh, focus on pharmaceuticals for mm-hmm. depression. And yep. I, I remember we were discussing because I had a very almost identical uh, experience myself as you did when you were exploring taking, uh, taking antidepressants. And so, to, and to me at that moment, I was like, well, that, uh, just like you said, there was a switch that it was like, wait a second, this isn't a, a solitary personal struggle or experience that it, 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 in that case, it was at least having a conversation and knowing that another person, you could relate to it. But then if you expand upon that, that there are thousands, if not, you know, millions of people who share that mindset. And maybe sometimes we just, we need to see it written or created in a piece such as you've made to just contemplate that, that, yeah, that's a basic, a lot of these things are basic human feelings or emotions or needs. And so to, uh, again, I guess, circle back, like you're revealing yourself through your work, but you're also making 
connections. And, and I think maybe that is, maybe those are, that is the payoff for the, the bravery or the, the, the overcoming the fear is that there is a relatability and, and you can make real human connections through your, your expression. I mean, I had a sort of like a pivotal experience um, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe 15, when a guy called Quentin Crisp, who was this at that by now, uh, not with us anymore, but this is late uh, British homosexual who, you know, was imprisoned for being a homosexual. And he came to my students uh, in New York to talk, you know, to my little class with like 13 students or 14 students. And the many quotable things that he said among them was that journalists, he used to tell journalists that everybody's interesting. And when they came back to him and said, that's not really true, Mr. Crisp, he changed it slightly and said, everybody who is honest is interesting. Mm. And as a designer, just it deeply hit me because I felt, wow. So ultimately, you don't even need a good idea to make an interesting piece of design. It just has to be really honest. Mm. And so that really, I think, was a big influence on this whole series of the things I've learned because I felt, okay, if I really make it honest, then I think it will automatically be interesting to people. Mm -hmm. And I still find that to be true. Not matter if it's a piece of design or a film or a friend talking to me. Yeah. I think that... Every, every boring dinner conversation I've ever had was with somebody not really being honest. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and, and then the fact that you're, you know, so not discounting your, your, your skill and expertise and artistic, you know, vision that also conveys the message in an aesthetically compelling way that doesn't hurt. I mean, I but try. it's... Of course. And but it's not oh. super, it's not just uh, superficial surface. Uh, like you said, there's truth and honesty at the core of, of, of that work. I would hope so, yes. And, uh, uh, and of course, I mean, we are as human beings and we did a whole big piece, another piece of work about that, you know, beauty is incredibly attractive. So uh, we now much more than, let's say, 20 years ago, where I thought that form and style weren't really that important. But I learned through experience that basically uh, I, we found that whenever on those occasions when we took form very seriously and really worked on the form of the thing, it seemed to work much better. Mm. And so... Uh, Yes, there has to be content, and yes, it has to be honest, but I now work very hard that the form that it takes is as beautiful as possible because I find that it's, people can relate to it much easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I could, I, I could totally see that. Um, not only in your work, but I think just that if you use that as a general sort of uh, approach that, um, you know, and I think that, you know, all creative people, all artists will probably work through their process where maybe form or style 
is is not the main concern because it's I think that you're digging into the sort of the 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 essential mm-hmm. element first. But I think in order for it to be at least transmitted or or responded to by a, an audience of some sort, that then style and form again maybe not mandatory but certainly will probably help it, it, I, you yeah. know as opposed to something that's only style with no substance yeah, yeah. um yeah so uh, i i 100% uh, understand what what you're describing there. Um, I do want so to now, now. I completely changed my mind of, on that. Like you know, when I was a young designer, I hated things that were just style. Mm-hmm. Now, if something... yeah, you had style equals fart as exactly as a as a as a motto for the studio, and uh, I think. If somebody, if something is now just style and it is contemporary, meaning it, that, that it has a right to be, you know, on June 21st, 2023, I find that actually quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't find that now at all. It's probably not something that would be the absolute top of my list, but that is also very difficult to do. Something that's very up to date and often now and is new and interesting, has nothing behind it. It's literally just interesting form. Uh, I'm totally fine with that. Okay. So we maybe revise that style equals fart. We'll put a little. That is gone. That is <laughs> that is that's definitely out of my studio. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, well, in respect to your time and also the work that you shared with me before the conversation, I would like to talk a little bit about your current work, mm-hmm. and I think specifically the now is better. Sort of, I, I, I know that there's sort of that's a multifaceted kind of yep. project for you. But let's talk about that. I did hear a conversation that you had on on a podcast regarding, and, and it may have been a couple of years ago, but it, it, and it wasn't, I didn't focus so much on the work that you were creating, but mm-hmm. the message that now is better, to me, it was so counter to the pervasive sort of like doom and gloom. Yeah. So can you just give me like a entry point to this project and then maybe describe sort of how it's flourished or where it, where it's gone since you first kind of launched it? Yeah. So I discovered while I was in Rome, I was lucky enough to get a, um, um, designer in residence at the American Academy in Rome, which was absolutely glorious. And while I was there and had time and worked in a beautiful studio there, it became completely clear to me that there are two ways to look at the world. One is very short term, which is the way all media looks at it. And that's almost exclusively negative. And it is so, it has to be so because bad things happen quickly, catastrophes, scandals, All of those things happen very quickly and lend themselves fantastically to a short-term 
message. Mm -hmm. Good things tend to become tend to become better very slowly. So they don't really work on Twitter or in daily newspapers or on cable TV. Mm -hmm. If you look at the world from a long-term perspective, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, interestingly, you get the exact opposite view of the world than you get from the short-term perspective. I mean, literally 180 degree the opposite. When in the short term, that's all scandals and catastrophes, in the long term, almost everything that is important to us has become better. And so by everything, I'm meaning we all rather eat, we all rather have food than are hungry. We all rather live in peace than in war. We we'd rather live in democracies than in dictatorships. We'd rather, we are rather healthy than sick and so on and so forth. And all of those things have actually been measured. There is fantastic data on nutrition 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 100 years ago now. There's fantastic data on how many democratic countries there were 200 years ago, one. How many there are now, 89. Uh, how many, what percentage of the world was at war 200 years ago versus now? How many, how is our health now? We live to 78 versus 200 years ago to 30, we live to 30 to 37 and so on and so forth. And there's really fantastic data about from great believable organizations like the World Bank, like the UN, like Harvard or Oxford. And it's just amazing that all of that stuff basically falls through, is almost never mentioned, sometimes it is, but very rarely mentioned on short-term media because it makes no sense to them. Mm -hmm. Even though, and uh, that's a fantastic thing that the data scientist Max Roser said that if a newspaper would only come out once every 50 years, the headline would be, the unbelievable way that we extended our life expectancy or alternatively, how incredibly extreme poverty has been reduced over the past 50 years. And so as a communication designer, I just found that incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. Most of my friends think the world is going to, to uh, that the world is going to hell. And when, if you look at it from a long-term perspective, almost everything has become better. And so uh, I'm basically, it was a long intro, and I'm basically trying to communicate that with many, many different, on many, many different mediums. So I tried for the mediums to be long-term so that they are around, so that it makes conceptual sense. So. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this on Twitter, obviously. Sure, right. Uh, so uh, that would be like that would literally be the worst medium to communicate that, <laughs> and I would be attacked ceaselessly from ev from every point. Yeah. I have no interest in that. Uh, but I'm trying to communicate it. Like one area is 
I buy, well, I buy two or 300 year old paintings and I put new inserts, inserts into these paintings, basically cut them up, put no new inserts in, in there that are ultimately data visualizations that show how a particular things, mm -hmm. voting rights, how we work much less, how we have to have much more leisure time, blah, blah, blah. Many, 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 many things. Uh, that somebody can look at in a museum or a gallery, buy it, hang it above their sofa as a reminder that what they just read on Twitter doesn't really mean that everything is terrible. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Sorry, you no, go. No, I was going to say it's, 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 a, it's a literal antidote for the short-term panic or chaos or negativity. It's and and yes, you're right. The fact that like you, you would be crucified if it was here's my Instagram of this project and that's, you know, or, or Twitter that gets lost in the feed. So excellent. And clearly your 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 mind, your mental approach to the project is like those are the kinds of things I think from a creative standpoint that we're always like, you know, like. Well, I have to it, like if I'm going to do this honestly, legitimately, then be taken seriously or authentically, that those are the things that you need to consider. And especially if you're going against the pervading mindset to just tell people and and that's not denying that there are problems in the world because not at all. But it's also taking a a, a broader view and you're absolutely right. There are so many things that are better and that you are, are not only uh, sharing that, that information or those thoughts, but then creating art from that is, I, I find that particularly inspiring. Well, and I feel like, you know, if I, if I go to the galleries, which I do a lot because I still think that there is a fantastic amount of quality work being created in the art world right now. But if, if, there is, if there is art that basically talks about the current human condition, be it politically or being it just about life, it, the majority of it is also criticizing something or negative. And a good part of that is stuff that I already know. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if I go into a gallery or if I go to a museum, I don't need to be informed about global warming by the artist. Yeah. And I find that to be very much preaching to the choir because the, I agree. the segment of the population that does go to galleries and museums is more than likely liberal mm -hmm. and than likely informed about these issues. And I find preaching to the choir unbelievably boring. I'd much rather see art that goes against my prevailing thought. And considering that so many of my friends do believe that, meaning I have friends who literally won't have kids because they think that they, this is not a world that you could put kids into. Mm -hmm. But if you if the last 200 years or the last 500 years can be any sort of 
model. And considering that now is much better than it was 500 years ago, and 400 years ago was better than 500, and 300 years was better than 400, I think that our kids will have a fantastic possibility of a fantastic life. Because yes, of course, many of the things that we are developing right now, AI, the metaverse, will have unintended terrible consequences. No doubt about it. But I find that we as human beings have a surprising flexibility to ultimately realize those side effects. Some of them are foreseeable, some of them are not. In these complex systems, they are just not foreseeable and are able to take care of them. Now, of course, there are some problems that we didn't have 500 years ago. The dying out of species, the uh, global warming are really new problems. And considering how we have dealt with recent old problems, let's say, when I first moved to New York, it seemed like the garbage problem was unsurmountable mm -hmm. with the vouchers being sent everywhere. We seem to have solved it enough that it's off the headlines for sure. Mm -hmm. The same would be true for, you know, I remember in the 70s and 80s, Population control seemed to be unsurmountable with some scientists, specifically a guy from Stanford, I guess, predicting that by the year 2000, we'll have people dying by the tens of millions because we can't feed them. Mm. Well, it seems to have to be solved it. I mean, now no smart person I know seems to think that population, overpopulation is a serious problem. The UN predicts that we will reach maximum population of 10 billion roughly around 2070. And then we will have a serious opposite problem where, and some, of course, some developed countries like Japan and Germany already have that right now, mm -hmm. where basically where it's the opposite problem, that we have too little population. Mm -hmm. And as we are now looking at so many formerly poor people joining the lower middle classes, they will have much, much lesser kids and we can very, very much predict that. So in any case, I find that we seem to have found, we seem to be much more flexible than I would have thought when I was 20. And so my guess is, my good guess is that with an incredible effort and a giant effort, we actually will find solutions for these big problems that we have now. And in any way, I'm absolutely convinced that our chances to find these solutions are much better from a platform of, we've actually already achieved quite some good things rather than from one, rather than from one of doom and gloom, because I know it from myself. If I'm depressed, I'm of no use mm. to my surroundings, to my friends, to my family, to the people that touch, to my students. If I'm in a bad shape, I'm of much less use than if I'm in good shape. Uh, I, and I'm looking at the clock and I, I know that we want to probably wrap things up. Uh, I'm going to reference back to somebody who I know 
uh, was very important to you uh, and the development of your creativity in your career. Tibor Kalman, uh, his book, Perverse Optimist. I almost feel like you could take that banner and, and, and run with it. Um, Tibor was a huge influence on my design thinking and on directions that would be interesting. Huge. And, you know, starting with the, his always thinking about design as a language, as a true language. And once you really internalize that, it becomes clear that you shouldn't just talk commercial messages with that language. I meaning nobody would learn Spanish and then just I don't know, speaking advertising slogans. <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, in the, in the language of design, specifically of graphics, many, many, many professionals do that all their lives. And I have nothing against it. It's just it could also diversify and you could also say something else because the language is strong and powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think your, your career and your, your continued exploring new avenues for for your expression is is a testament to that thank you so all right well why don't we wrap it up because i want i know that you you you've got other things lined up but uh stefan sagmeister thank you so much for taking time out uh it was a pleasure um and uh hope we we chat again soon absolutely have a wonderful evening So there you go, folks, my conversation with graphic designer, visual artist, filmmaker, and all around creative dynamo, Stefan Sagmeister. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I was really flattered that Stefan would take some time out to chat with me. Um, and you should definitely check out the links to all his work that I will, of course, include in the show notes. Hey, if you're a new listener, why not subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice? And if you could, please leave me a review on the Apple podcast platform. It will help me get this show out to even a larger audience. I appreciate each and every one of you tuning in and listening and hope you stick around for all of the great new content that'll be coming out this season. I've got a bunch of really cool interviews already in the can and we'll be exploring all sorts of photography and other visual art related topics coming up in this new season please go to the website righteyedominantpodcast.com if you've got any questions you can scroll down to the bottom and find a little area there where you could send me questions or comments and also you'll find the full archive of two full seasons of this podcast at that website as well. So that is it for now. This has been the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I've been your host, Nick Toro Jr. And until next time, stay well. This podcast has been a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music for today's episode is brought to you by The Comet Project, Yelmer, and Yazar. <laughs>